Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting now Kristen Munson, writing in Utah State Magazine. In mid-January, the internet was awash in sea shanty videos on TikTok. A week later, memes of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, bundled in a burdened coat and sweater mittens, uh, made the rounds on Twitter. Within minutes, Sanders, originally photographed at the January 20th inauguration ceremony, was photoshopped sitting uh, on a subway, uh, perched on the iconic Friends couch on the White House lawn, near a boy pushing a lawnmower. So where do memes come from, and why do we love them so, and what do the memes we share say about us? This uh, comes from an interview in uh, the recent uh, current edition of Utah State Magazine, and we thought we'd take this discussion uh, to the radio. And we're going to ask these questions of Lynn McNeil, Associate Professor of Folklore at Utah State University and co-founder of the USU Digital Folklore Project. Uh, Lynn McNeil is author of the popular textbook Folklore Rules, co-editor of Slender Man is Coming, Creepypasta and Contemporary Legends on the Internet, and is reviews editor for Contemporary for the journal Contemporary Legend. Lynn McNeil, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate uh, you being on uh, again. Um, so I want to start with your Twitter feed, uh, which is always <laughs> interesting. Um, you, you, had a, you have a poignant story here in three tweets. Um, <laughs> you had a weird moment of, I guess, con- yep. connection with someone over a dead squirrel. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, it was a very strange human sort of moment. I was driving, and as one does, I mean, super mundane details. I can see that there's a squirrel in the middle of the road. It's been hit by a car. It's dead. And I'm looking at it and just sort of thinking, oh, you know, that's too bad. And I look up, and there's a woman on foot on the side of the road who's also looking at the squirrel and sort of making a face that I think probably reflects what my face must have looked like in that moment. And then she looks up, and we make eye contact. And it's this moment where you can see both of us register that we were both just thinking the same thing and have both recognized it in the other person. And so we sort of smile sadly at each other, and then it's gone. I mean, I was in a car. I was going quickly, and the moment is over. But it felt like this very strange moment of true connection with another human being over one of these so common but still sad and unfortunate moments of life, and then it was just ended, and I found myself thinking, oh man, if I drive by her again, I'll recognize her, and I think she'll recognize me and will remember this moment. That's how significant it was somehow. And this uh, need not have been connected in my mind to the pandemic, but it, but it, uh, I went there, and it, um, because the elements, oh, the elements, yeah. you don't need the pandemic for the elements of this story, right, that, that you experienced, but it seemed to epitomize to me that uh, this kind of this separation oh, yeah. that we feel and, and these connections that we sometimes have. I think we are, because of the past year now, more than a year, we are all hyper aware of things that we used to take totally for granted when it comes to our shared social lives with other people. So the roles that other people that we took for granted completely that, you know, talking to people in grocery stores and running into people on the street or at work or at a social gathering, having that all removed, I think, has really cast into relief the moments that we do still get to have. And now we're starting to have more and more as, as you know, vaccination is happening. And, and in some areas, at least, things are, are winding down and, and restrictions are changing. I think we're all going to be having these strangely poignant moments that, uh, upon reflection, are very typical and perhaps not all that outstanding, and yet we are aware of the ways in which they're important in ways that we wouldn't be or wouldn't have been before this pandemic. So before we jump into memes in general, I wanted to keep it on the pandemic. Uh, Has there, you had at least a year of this now, Uh, how has folklore, how have we responded in the realm of folklore to the pandemic? You know, as we do with everything, folklore is there to take social topics in stride it we've incorporated into our jokes into our stories into our customs i mean the the fact that we have the idea of you know traditions on zoom when you're in a zoom meeting and uh someone's pet walks into the frame you know we call it the cat tax or the dog tax the meeting has to stop you have to introduce us to your pet say something about it and just as with so much folklore you know i live here in the west 
I have friends on the East Coast who are telling me about how they're in a meeting and someone applied the cat tax. And I'm going, man, you guys know about that, too. And it's just that sense that our everyday culture has just shifted to give us these shared ways to incorporate this thing that seems that is so unimaginable would have been the subject and was of apocalyptic movies. And we've been living through it. And we do what we do with it. We tell stories about it. We tell jokes about it. We make customs and rituals that help us cope. And we share memes and rumors and legends like wildfire. One of the, um, one of the, the I guess you uh, is uh, I guess you call this a meme. Um, that's I think been uh, epitomized. Uh, the the uh, our feelings during the the pandemic has been, um, I'm trying to think what we call this, you know, before and after. Uh, uh, yes, the how, folks, how it started, how uh, it's going. Yes, name. yes. Uh, do you have some favorites in that genre? Oh, my goodness. You know, so this meme I love because it started out fairly benign and positive. Uh, a lot of the early iterations of this meme were about relationships. So people, it's usually like a styled as a diptych with two different frames. And the one on the left, which is the how it started, might feature two friends, a picture of two friends hanging out or maybe even a text conversation screen capped where someone's like, you know, hey, this is me. This is what I'm into. And then the next one is two people perhaps at a prom together or getting married um, or on a date. And that's the how it's going. So here's how we started. Here's how it's going. So a fairly benign sort of updating of a status type of meme. And in 2020, it became this incredibly salient way for us to talk about expectations being broken, specifically. Um, So how it started for 2020 is often uh, one popular version of it is sort of the 2019 New Year's Eve style where everyone's like, yay, this is going to be the year that everything changes and everything's wonderful. And then 2020 features a picture of someone just sort of desolate and alone on their couch. Or we see, as we often do in memes, clips from pop culture stolen. So there's a popular scene from the TV show The Office where one of the characters is carrying a large pot of chili or soup and drops it and it's all over the floor. So we have the, you know, hey, I'm here with the food is how it started. And then, you know, everything is spilled all over the floor as the house is going. Um, And it really is this shared cultural form that lets us say expectations were broken. I see that as the ultimate thing that we needed to talk about in the year 2020 is that whatever we thought was going to happen, whether we thought it was going to happen on a personal level or a political level or a global level or a health level, expectations were broken. And this is the meme that lets us say that in a whole variety of ways so that we can all sort of relate to, man, whatever I thought was going on, that is not what I got. And I'm sure you can't predict these things, right? Uh, you would never, uh, we couldn't predict what would be happening a year from now in memes or anything in folklore. No, no, we really can't. Um, and it's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, I think in the ways that our shared cultural mentality sort of attempted to prepare us for these apocalyptic ideas, we have the whole idea of the zombie apocalypse, which has been a a popular meme, just sort of in thought and conception for a long time. And people are suddenly going, oh, wait, this is it. You know, now I'm living through it. And, you know, if think back to the early days of the meme when we were all hoarding toilet paper and, you know, the grocery stores are running out of essential items and everyone's stocking up at home. And then what did we do with all that toilet paper we hoarded? We created obstacle courses for our pets. And we filmed our pets running through those obstacle courses made out of stacks and stacks of toilet paper as we realized that, yes, access to goods is going to be a part of this pandemic, but so is boredom. So is isolation. So is being trapped in our homes and needing to entertain ourselves and needing to take a break from our families who are with us. And folklore shows us all of that. It it shows us the panic. It shows us the anxiety. And it also shows us the creativity and the fun that people manage to have despite this unpredictable year. So I want to take you back, just as Kristen Bunsen does in this uh, interview. I'll refer you to Utah State Magazine. Uh, So give us a brief history of memes. Uh, How did this start? 
Yeah, so the term, unexpectedly to a lot of people, was coined in 1976 by the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. He, of course, was not talking about the Internet. He was talking about what we might think of as viral ideas. He thought of memes as the cultural analog to genes or genetics, where genes spread and evolve through a gene pool. He talked about memes spreading and evolving through a meme pool, leaping from mind to mind. And just as with genes, he observed that memes follow the rule of survival of the fittest. And, you know, when we think about that survival of the fittest, it's easy to you know, slip into thinking that we mean that if you're fit, if you're physically capable, you're going to survive better. And of course, that's not what that phrase means. What that phrase means is how well does any particular trait fit in its environment? A physiological or physical trait needs to be honed for the environment it's in, and that's the one that's going to survive. And that's what we see with memes as well, is that the memes that fit best, whether that's fitting our cultural context, our political context, our temporal or geographical context, those are the memes that are going to thrive. So what we are worried about, what we need a way to symbolically articulate, that's going to be the mimetic content that really thrives at any given time. So, of course, conversely, we can look at, wow, what memes are out there thriving, and what does that tell us about our current cultural context? So this term meme, originally applied in this much broader sense, was adopted by a lot of early users of the Internet. This is not a term that scholars came along and applied to Internet content. This is a term that Internet users themselves knew of and applied quite appropriately to the content that they were starting to create and share and circulate on the Internet. So for most people now, the term meme means Internet meme, even though originally it was this much broader idea. So if this, you know, folklore in general, and, you know, memes in particular, digital folklore, reflects our fears, our needs, our, it's a finger on the pulse, right? Um, yes, and the way that it does that is by that key quality of evolution, just like with genetic replication. Mimetic replication relies on the meme's ability to evolve. And this is a really important concept that folklorists like to lean into because something can go viral on the Internet without becoming a meme, meaning that there's a funny ad or an image or a quote or a news story that people hear and share and say, wow, this is poignant to me. I want to spread this, whether it's True or false is a different question. We certainly do see a lot of fake news spread in a viral way. But when it becomes mimetic, that's when everyday people get their hands on it and start to change it. So that's where we see, just as we have long before the Internet with rumors, with legends, this cultural shaping that takes place where the communities that 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 are circulating these objects get to adapt them to better suit our needs. So if there's a rumor going around, say, about a university um, in New England, by the time that rumor makes it here out west, we might be telling it about a university in the Intermountain West because it adapts to become more relevant. And it's that quality of both memes and folklore that really make them the most useful barometer of cultural sentiment. It seems like in a very simplistic sense, and I'm I'm guessing this is doesn't reflect the actual reality, but it seems like early on it's 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 cute kittens, and uh, then then we go to you know the the stuff about COVID and and Karen you know pictures and and memes and stuff. Um, it, it seems like from innocence to to, to a more troubled time. I, I don't know if it's that simple. You know, I don't know. It It is in some ways because what you're observing is that we have the full spectrum of, of human experience reflected in memes at any given moment. What it probably isn't is quite so linear. Um, in the early, early days of the Internet, when we were first discovering what at the time was called image macros, which was a, a picture with sort of that white, bold impact font over it, what we think of as some of the first Internet memes, um, yeah, those were sort of being discovered as funny, a new, a new form, a new visual form of joke telling or, you know, social commentary making, maybe. Um, they quickly, very quickly took on 
political tones, uh, more serious themes emerged. Um, and sometimes it was a, an evolution of what had once been a very sort of silly um, internet meme, you know, a very, very popular internet meme early in the early days of the internet in the 90s was um, what is known as the lolrus. That is L-O-L-R-U-S. It's uh, a walrus, though it's not actually. It's a giant seal. Um, looking like he doesn't want a large blue bucket taken away. I know this is incredibly <laughs> random and esoteric sounding, but if you Google lolrus, you'll see it. It's a picture of this large seal and someone's holding his blue bucket and the, the animal is sort of being made to say, no, they're taking my bucket. Um, this was one of the first big popular internet memes. And as you observe, it's clearly fun. It's clearly silly. It's a little bit nonsensical. And immediately we saw that being applied to political figures, um, authors, anyone who we might think resemble the walrus, anyone who we might think is having something pulled aggressively from their hands. I remember seeing an iteration of that where President George W. Bush um, appears to be reaching out for something and he's saying, no, they're taking my budget. Um, so, we, you know, we see sort of that really artful application of uh, traditional form that is a bit silly and meaningless, immediately being applied to a political context where it says something applicable. So uh, as you look out the landscape today with regard to memes and other expressions on the Internet, mm. uh, w what are they saying about us right now? Or what's the mood of the country, do you think? Yeah, this is a tough one because we are a lot of things right now. Um, we are anticipatory, I think. We are looking forward to getting some semblance of normalcy back, and we are anxious about what that's going to mean and how that's going to happen and the unevenness with which it's going to happen. We're in a time where there's a lot of disparities being highlighted, who has vaccines and who doesn't, who has access to vaccines and who doesn't. Um, and the, I think the global nature of a lot of our expectations of commerce and trade and travel is coming into play big time here. And we're starting to see a lot of uh, differences being highlighted. And of course, the political climate as well is something that, that we're all concerned about. And I think that we're seeing all of those themes reflected in digital folklore. I think one of the big ones that we see, though, is a large upswing in collaborative traditions. And this was something that Kristen actually um, touched on. She and I talked about it in doing the interview for Utah State Magazine, was the idea of sea shanty TikTok, which I love as a person who appreciates and sings sea shanties. Um, the app, web app TikTok, has a duet feature where someone can post a video and another person can post themselves responding to or in collaboration with that video. And that can sort of keep going. So you can have a third and a fourth and it, it becomes almost like a, like a piece of music where each new part is being added in on top of it. So all these sea shanty enthusiasts all across the globe are suddenly collaborating without needing to know each other, without needing to make sure they're in the same place at the same time. They're creating these duets and trios and quartets and quintets all singing and playing music together and, and people deciding, I'm going to add in a bass line, I'm going to bring in a musical instrument. Um, and I think that that's, on a positive note, one of the biggest trends we're seeing right now is this creative ways to connect with other people. And that's not to say that there's not, you know, depressing negative stuff happening as well. We're certainly awash in conspiracy theories, as we, as we often are any time that we as a society are very anxious and worried about things. But we see this positivity, too. I think it's important to keep that, that balance in mind. Let's take a break. We'll come back about more, of course, with Lynn McNeil. She's Associate Professor of Folklore in the English Department at Utah State University, featured uh, recently in the uh, current edition of Utah State Magazine, that interview with Kristen Munson there we've been making reference to. And we'll talk much more about uh, digital folklore and memes and related topics. Maybe pick up that uh, theme of conspiracy theories uh, following this break. Composer Caroline Shaw wove together this new piece using strands of Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3. It's an artful blend of Beethoven and today. Pianist Jonathan Biss plays Watermark by Caroline Shaw on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
It's time for a bit of fun at the Bit and Spur restaurant located in the Red Rock Mountains of Southern Utah. UPR invites you to join us for an afternoon of live music and a free picnic lunch. We look forward to seeing you Tuesday, May 25th from noon to 2. We'll be gathering in the grassy area of the Bit and Spur in Springdale just minutes from the entrance of Zion National Park. Seating is limited. Sign up and select your meal of choice. Details are at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Lynn McNeil, Associate Professor of Folklore in the English Department at Utah State University. Uh, she is a co-founder of the Digital Folklore Project at USU. And we are talking about digital folklore. Specifically, uh, memes is what we've been talking about. That's the subject of a, an interview in Utah State Magazine, uh, the latest edition, an interview with uh, Kristen Munson. Um, so I want to take up a discussion you had with Kristen Munson, uh, Lynn McNeil. Um, Kristen had the, this idea, t- taking up this uh, TikTok sh- sea shanty uh, duets and, and trios. She said, why isn't Congress not doing doing that. That's a great idea. Um, I just want to quote your answer here and get into this. You you made reference to conspiracy theories before the break. Uh, So quoting you, uh, Lynn McNeil, a few years ago, Folklorists did a special journal issue on fake news, which in many ways is indistinguishable from legend and rumor. It just originates in a more malicious place. But once it takes off, it moves and functions just like legend and rumor. Uh, So maybe expand on that. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Th- yes, this has been a, an interesting thing for not just folklorists, but, you know, journalists and scholars of new media to sort of say, okay, how do we pin down this phrase fake news that, that really jumped on the scene, obviously, in our recent political times? And what I think one of the keys to this concept is, certainly from a folklorist perspective, is that the concept of fake news is not about its point of origin as much as it is about how we receive it. So fake news may start, as we think of it, maliciously created, intentionally false content meant to confuse and frighten people. That is absolutely fake news. But we also have things like satire, articles from The Onion or The Babylon Bee that get detached from their intended context of knowing or acknowledged satire that begin to circulate as potentially true. And of course, what makes something good satire is that it's just close enough to possible that we sort of go, oh man, yeah, that's great social commentary. Well, the minute you don't see, you know, the frame or the context of satirical news site around that headline, suddenly it has the possibility of being a very good rumor, which is, whoa, that sounds just possible enough to be true. And man, that plays into a lot of my fears and biases, right? And then we also have news stories that various politicians simply don't like and dismiss with the label, oh, that's fake news. I don't like it, therefore it's fake news. So we have all these different ways that something becomes fake news, but the end result is a story or a kernel of a story that circulates by word of mouth among everyday people, getting passed along either through social media or through, you know, face-to-face communication, and it begins to be indistinguishable from any other form of folklore. So you go on to talk about, uh, well, how do we counteract this? You say one of the things people often say is that we all need to become better readers and critical thinkers and fact-checkers. But maybe there's a problem with that. Yes, and that's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the the main recommendation in the face of things like this is, hey, we need to do better with our critical thinking, with our research, with our fact-checking, and that is undeniable. We absolutely do. When we see a news article, especially one that feels inflammatory. Even if it's one that we agree with and we say, yeah, that's matching up with all my, you know, sentiments about how the world works today. Um, if it seems like it's inflammatory, we need to, to sit down and say, hey, wait a minute, I need to look at this more closely. I need to visit a fact-checking website, something like that. But the problem is, and this is something that I've been really interested in um, as a folklorist, is that we think about critical reading and fact-checking and research in terms of reading information. We don't think about doing that in terms of talk. 
And because fake news becomes folkloric, it becomes conversational so that I'm not getting this information through the reading of articles. I'm getting this information through what amounts to conversations with my family, my friends, people I implicitly trust. We share the same worldviews. We share the same opinions. And, you know, one of my parents comes home and says, oh, my gosh, did you hear what happened today? I don't immediately start fact-checking that. I, we're just having a conversation about something they heard on the news. I am implicitly trusting of that relationship and therefore, I am implicitly trusting of that information. And that's where it gets really tricky, is that because fake news becomes more conversational, more folkloric, our fact-checking instincts, however astute they might be in a different context, sort of go out the window. And this is, of course, why... So many of us end up believing uh, urban legends and and rumors that we hear that aren't of a newsworthy nature. Um, And that's that's a thing that we're less worried about because the, the repercussions of that might be less. But it's information that we hear in that same vein, and we don't think to question it. You know, I talk with my students about urban legends, what folklorists like to call contemporary legends, because urban is a bit of a misnomer. And... They'll hear these stories, and my students will all say, how could anyone believe this stuff? It's so outrageous. It's so over the top. But, of course, when you learn it in class, you're reading it in a book, in a journal article. It's labeled urban legend. It's in this context where all of its bizarreness and over-the-topness is highlighted. And it's really important to remember that the way we truly experience these in our lived cultural lives isn't even as news or as nobody sits down and says, hey, did you hear the latest urban legend? No, it's just a thing that happened. Did you guys hear what happened today? Yeah, let me tell you. And that's how we get that. And that really informal cultural communication goes into a place in our brains that is so much more about our trust of our family and friends than about our critical assessment of the content of that information, that we're up against something that looks a lot different than research when it comes to how we can identify false information. And conspiracy theories, you pointed out that there's a rise in conspiracy theories when we are, I guess, more angry, more anxious, right, more fearful, uh, as people yeah. and it, and uh, these fill a need right an, an emotional need for people yes absolutely when we are living in times of high ambiguity so things a lot is happening it's really important stuff and yet we don't get how it's all fitting together why are so many frightening and contentious things happening all at once we like to draw connections we like to connect disparate ideas. We might connect them with facts, real facts. We might connect them with speculation. We might connect them with a rumor we heard. We might connect them with a legend. But whatever the nature of those connections, it builds this what brutalizing discourse about the way things are working. And even if we don't like the way things are working, that totalizing discourse is comforting. It tells us, okay, there is sense. Here, there is, there's something happening. I, I know what to do. And as many folklorists have pointed out, conspiracy theories rarely ask us to hate someone we aren't already inclined to hate. So it fits right in with all of our worst instincts, our biases, our stereotypes. Um, conspiracy theories play right into those. And, and that's, in, in a sad way, that's where part of that feeling of satisfaction comes from is, yes, okay, this is the world as I know it. I don't like it, but now it's making sense. And it's that desire for sense-making that, that drives a lot of these conspiracy theories. And so understanding maybe what need this fills and understanding where this comes from, uh, of course, doesn't solve the problem that this is can be very, very damaging, right? Um I'm interested yeah. in uh, your your colleague Jeannie Thomas uh, came up with a mm-hmm. uh, the slap test, which I I, th- I thought yeah. it can be helpful in in testing out a, yeah. I guess something you find on the internet. Absolutely, this is an incredible system where she she's talked about it in terms of yes. You can turn to a folklorist or an investigative journalist or or any number of of professional fact-checkers to say, is this rumor true? Is this conspiracy theory true? And what Jeannie has done is kind of said, okay, rather than giving people fish, how can I teach them to fish? How How can I help people 
um, answer these questions for themselves. And so, yeah, she's come up with this slap testing. And, and one of the things that I think is best about this is she's very clear on don't slap other people. <laughs> we're slapping the stories. We're, 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 if anyone, we're slapping ourselves. This is a self-awareness campaign. Um, and, of course, SLAP is an acronym, S-L-A-P. And she asks us, you know, does this piece of news that you're hearing, um, is it attempting to scare or shock you? That's the S. The L is logistics. Does it rely on a really far-fetched set of logistics in order to be true? Um, the A stands for A-list. Does this involve high-profile people or companies, celebrities, big names that we've heard about? And then finally, P, as I was saying before, does this play into your own prejudices or biases? Is this already fitting in to a particular, perhaps negative worldview that you have? And asking yourself those questions, if you say yes to any or all of these, you want to say, okay, maybe this information might not actually be accurate. So you say don't slap someone else, right? Slap the information. <laughs> um, you know, and, and this is, I, I want to comment on that because this is really hard because it's really easy, of course, to see illogical thinking or leaping to conclusions or extreme biases in other people. It's really hard to see them in ourselves. And this is where a lot of that work that has to be done for us as a society to overcome our susceptibility to fake news is us working on ourselves. It's not the fake news of opposing opinions that we need to be the most worried about. It's the fake news that feeds our worldview that we need to be the most worried about. Because our worldviews should be predicated on actual information. And it's really hard when something confirms our own biases to question it. We don't want to. It fits. It makes us feel correct about the nature of reality. And we like that. But it's that very information that we need to be the most cautious about. We need to be slapping ourselves. You're slapping ourselves. Yes, yes. Point taken. And uh, <laughs> but but it, it's it's more and more difficult, isn't it? When when we can't even agree on what uh, the correct information is. Mm-hmm. Yes, and this is a this is a, a really difficult aspect of this situation right now is that we we simply throw out that fake news accusation at anything that we don't like. So when a fact checking website doesn't support our belief, then we say, "Oh well, it's obviously biased. It's wrong. That information is wrong." So I do think we're going to need to build some trust in certain institutions again over time. But there are people working on this. There's a folklorist um, out of UCLA, I think currently at UC Berkeley, named Tim Tangerlini, who just did a really cool data analysis study of conspiracy theories. And he looked at the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, the idea that politicians in Washington, D.C. were using a local pizza parlor as part of a child trafficking ring, um, and compared it to Chris Christie's Bridgegate, which is an actual conspiracy. Because The fact is, we do live in a world where there are conspiracies, not just conspiracy theories. And he looked at the way that those two different cultural moments compare. And what he found was that the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which is false, fell apart the minute you started cutting away any of its more far-fetched ties. Whereas Bridgegate, it stayed strong. Why? Because it actually happened. So you could snip out some of the different you know, lines that connect, you know, the pieces of red thread on the bulletin board in the, you know, in the basement room, you could cut some of those and Bridgegate still happened because it did. You cut even just one or two of those on something like Pizzagate and the whole thing falls apart because it didn't actually happen. So there are people working on how can we determine these more objective realities. What about, and I don't know if you have an answer for this, but what if you have a friend who's down the QAnon rabbit hole um, and you, you want to help them? Yeah. You, you want to shake them and say, yeah. get out of there, but, they're, but, they're, but for them, that's their reality. Yes, and this is one of the most difficult things, and to the point where there are support groups out there now for people who have lost, as they see it, friends and family members to some of these movements um, because it's so hard to shake. And I think... It's not a good piece of advice um, 
But the best piece of advice that a lot of people have come up with is to latch on to what's good in some of those situations and push that. So I know that in the QAnon cycle of conspiracy theories, one of the big moral points of it um, is to be against child sex trafficking. A lot of the claims of the QAnon conspiracy theory have to do with which individuals and which companies are involved in that. And, of course, that is a problem in global society. And it's something that we need to work on, but it's not something that QAnon as a group is successfully working on. And this is something actually that the survivors of child sex trafficking have been speaking out about more. There are organizations that help them. And if we want to help the victims of this terrible situation, there are places we can go. The Polaris Project is a great example. You know, we have in our minds, what do we need to do to stop this terrible thing from happening? We need to save kids from being snatched off the streets. And it turns out that the needs of the victims of this issue are actually much more nuanced and and perhaps even unexpected. A lot of people need their records cleared so that they can have future employment and, and apply for housing and things like that. That's what's needed, perhaps unexpectedly, in that community. And we can give our time and our money and our energy to an organization like the Polaris Project and really make a difference for the victims of child sex trafficking, whereas our affiliation with you know, various online conspiracy communities, it turns out actually isn't doing anything to help. And I think that's somewhere where someone from the outside of that conspiracy thinking community and someone on the inside of it can meet is, hey, I want to solve this social ill as well. Let's join forces and do it this way. Let's, let's listen to the victims of that situation and let's put our energy where they tell us it's needed. Let's take another break. We'll come back with uh, Lynn McNeil. She's Associate Professor of Folklore at the U- uh, in the English Department at Utah State University. We're talking about digital folklore. We've been talking about memes in particular. We'll continue this discussion following this. Bernie Madoff was a supervillain to most. This is a man that done stole more money than anybody else. But a superhero to some. He's more important than Jesse James. You know what I mean? Bonnie and Clyde. Remembering Madoff and the Ponzi ripoff he masterminded on the next reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're celebrating Mother's Day. We have the mother-son duo of Jewel Robinson and Kwame Onwachi talking about how she inspired him to become a lauded chef. We take Mother's Day cooking questions with Melissa Clark, and we hear about the Korean birthday soup tradition of Myokuk. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest is Lynn McNeil, Associate Professor of Folklore in the English Department at Utah State University. Um, and uh, co-founder of the USU Digital Folklore Project. Um, uh, by the way, Lynn McNeil, what, wh- how, what's the best way to find the USU Digital Folklore Project? The best way to find it is probably on Twitter. Our Twitter account is digfolkproj. <laughs> That's D-I-G-F-O-L-K-P-R-O-J. And that's where people, if they would like to help us crowdsource the folkloric trends that they're noticing online, you can always tweet content to that account, and we retweet the stuff that people tweet to us. Or you can simply browse through it and sort of see what's happening. One of the goals of the project is to really reflect a broader awareness of digital folklore than the slice of it that that any of those of us involved experience daily. You know, the Internet, like any context of culture, the Internet... um, is much bigger than any one person's experience of it. So the the trends that I observe in my daily wanderings through the Internet might be wildly different than someone else's. And so we really welcome collaboration and crowdsourcing with the Digital Folklore Project. Uh, what's a trend or two you have your eye on right now? It's really uh, in your consciousness. Oh, man. You know, I think that I think that one of the things that, that, that I certainly see right now is, is 
the masking situation and people kind of trying to figure out when do we mask, when don't we, especially when it's not being mandated, and how are we sort of dividing up these different types of people, and we get all sorts of, you know, new terminologies like mask holes and things like that, um, and, you know, new sorts of expectations and, and all of these different ideas, and even just the, you know, we, we have in our minds so often the, you know, the way we expect people with different attitudes to physically present themselves, and we've added this interesting piece of crafting, if you will, to it. So, you know, that we we see people who wear their mask hanging below their nose or, you know, who have it in a particular style hanging off of one ear, these sorts of things. I think what I love about it is that it's something that manifests digitally. We, you know, because we aren't seeing a lot of people these days, we're still accessing a lot of this information from the Internet, but it is what amounts to material culture, craft, what, you know, folklorists would describe it that way. And the fact that we have this new, this new object to contend with, I think, is one of the things that I find most interesting. You, on your Twitter feed, you uh, uh, made a link to an interesting article in Slate magazine, uh, which featured information from mm. Andrea Kitta. Uh, who wrote a book called Vaccinations yeah. and Public Concern in History. So uh, folklore and pandemic. Um, yes. One of the things that stood out to me in this uh, interview uh, of her in Slate magazine is that uh, some of this, these things, I, I guess, are, are similar, uh, you know, from pandemic to pandemic. So some things in 1918 have reappeared in this one. Yes, and this is this is very a very poignant thing that folklorists stand to be able to to help people remember is that these things happen in cycles. We've been here before. We've dealt with this in the past, whether that's politics, whether that's pandemic. It's something that has happened in the past. And Dr. Kita is a good friend of mine. Her recent book is called The Kiss of Death, and it's about folklore and contagion. She was our 2020 Fife Folklore Honor Lecturer in the Folklore Program, talking about COVID folklore um, and what it stands to tell us and, and show us about our world today and how, how we can use it to understand ourselves better. And what we see so often is what we have seen throughout time. The early suspicion of vaccines is certainly her research area, more contemporary anti-vaccine movements, um, as well as what we're seeing right now sort of on the fly, which has its own contours. We're now not talking about the, the generalized issues of vaccination. We're talking about the very specific issues of a vaccine that was created in under a year, brought from development to the market. And how do we feel about that? And even people who do not identify as anti-vaxxers um, have found themselves saying, okay, is this something that I really should be comfortable with? And it's a, it's a different perspective on the, the scientific process and the ways that the people who are creating these essential life-saving tools like vaccines for us, the way that they operate and the way that they run their testing, and we're all getting a crash course in that right now. So that's what we're talking about. I guess this reflects fear, right? Uh, in, in this article, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they reproduce a cartoon uh, in which uh, Edward Jenner is uh, you know, injecting mm-hmm. vaccine. I don't know if this is uh, for smallpox, but... Uh, um, or maybe cowpox, and uh, you yeah. got, got the people who have been vaccinated have animal parts growing out of them. Yes, and this was this was a early commentary on vaccinations. Was hey, wait a minute, you're taking things from animals and injecting it into our bodies, and you're saying that's going to change our bodies in a particular way. And yes, in, in you know when when Jenner was coming up with these ideas. This, this was the understanding how the human immune system works. But at the time, this concept of, wait, so I, I'm being changed into a cow. I'm being changed into these animals. I mean, we think of it differently now. We use perhaps more scientific terms to, to express concern or, or doubt, but very, very similar to the sorts of concerns that people have now. I want to ask you specifically about, um, well, go to the dark side again. And uh, to take mm-hmm. for an example, deep fakes, which seem to be mm-hmm. the technology is getting better and better. 
if you could use that word, or yep. wor- worse and worse if you if it's applied to deep fakes, uh, so that the yeah. deep fake can become absolutely effective and believable. Um, so I don't know how we counteract uh, something like that, and that there are other examples you could you could give. Um, are you hopeful? That the you know it's it's, it's an arms race uh, perhaps and uh, yeah. we're, we're not going to remove the, the you know, yeah. digital aspect of our lives right but uh, but how do we counteract some of the dark side here? You know I am generally an optimist about technology. <clears throat> Excuse me, but deep fakes are scary because what they are is a semblance of reality in one of the best formats we have now, which is video. We we understand that we can you know fake text fairly easily. We can quote someone on something they didn't say. Um, We can even Photoshop a news headline or a tweet to look like it's saying something that it's not. But deepfakes appear, when done well, to be a person actually speaking, being video recorded, saying things that they've never said, doing things that they've never done. We've seen this already in the news with a clip of Nancy Pelosi that was doctored to appear as though she was giving a a public address while intoxicated. And this is a frightening thing. And I think, one, there's many, many people working on figuring out how to come to a sense of agreement on what authorities we can trust when it comes to information that is actually accurate and information that isn't. But I also think, and I don't know what it will look like or what form it will take, but the folk, everyday people will have a way of self-monitoring some of this information. And I think this is a thing that we see more and more. I mean, everyday people, podcasters, are now some of our best criminal investigators. People taking on a case, doing the work that maybe, you know, law enforcement doesn't have the time to dig into for one individual case. We're seeing drastic changes to the outcomes of cold cases because of podcasters. We see people on Twitter taking up a particular cause, digging into an issue, archiving tweets that have been deleted in the past and making sure that they're still available for other people to have. And even on a super mundane level, we have the everyday creation of traditions and trends that help keep us from being the worst we can be, that help keep us more polite, more in tune with other people, more conscientious of the world around us and the people that are in it. And I think that we need to pay attention to those things as well, lest we just completely give in to despair. We just have uh, three or four minutes left, and I want to uh, change topics uh, slightly. Um, Last week, Mm On this program, we featured a, uh, a podcast uh, created by some USU students, uh, which delved into the world of folklore. They they profiled St. Anne's Retreat up uh, Logan Canyon. That was very well done. These are USU freshmen. Yes. I, I, I look forward to what they do in the future, if that's what they're producing as freshmen. Um, so I wonder if you'd tell us briefly about, uh, this gets us into the uh, realm of legend tripping, right? Um People make pilgrimages to St. Anne's Retreat and other like places. Yep. And this is really, this is one of my favorite things about legends. One of the reasons, I mean, there's many genres of folklore out there in the world, obviously, that are all ripe for studying and that are, that are, you know, engaging and interesting to consider. But for me, legends and and local legends and supernatural legends, I think are, are a especially engaging because of this possibility of legend tripping. Legend tripping basically means going to the site that a legend is about and checking it out for yourself. And what this does is it moves our engagement with that folklore out of the realm of storytelling and into the realm of embodied activity. We don't just tell legends, we do them, we live them, we experience them. So I hear this story about, you know, a potentially creepy old nunnery that's up Logan Canyon and the various nefarious things that were taking place there, and it's a good story. And yes, I can turn around and retell it, you know, at my next, you know, gathering of friends, or I can go there myself and check it out and wander around and and gain that real embodied sense of place. And that's a really special, unique kind of cultural experience. And, of course, you know, I feel I need to say that for anyone wanting to go to St. Anne's, it's also trespassing. So that's something to be conscientious of. But there's many places to go legend tripping. The Weeping Woman statue in the Logan Cemetery is a famous legend tripping site that is 
open to the public. Just a couple of minutes left. Um, what if you tell us what you're working on now? Man, what I'm working on now mainly is um, graduating all of our graduate students and mm-hmm. making sure that the folklore program is running at its you know peak efficiency as much as possible. That's sort of been my goal. I've taken a bit of a step back from publishing, though I did, as we discussed earlier, have the um, the Utah Foodways book that came out recently, and that's been a fun trail to continue. Is that's a bit of a a genre shift for me, and so getting to talk about food a little bit is a, a fun change-up from memes and legends and conspiracy theories, much less depressing in many ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and students, um, what do students, by the way, what, what do students usually want to do with a folklore uh, degree or, or studying folklore? Oh, I am so glad that you asked. Yeah, folklore is one of those degrees that people sort of go, hmm, really, you know, is that is that going to lead me directly to a particular line of work? And the answer is, yeah, it may. Um, folklore students here at Utah State University, we have an undergraduate minor and a master's degree that we offer. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do with a folklore degree that you wouldn't necessarily think of. There's public sector work where you can work with arts agencies or in museums um, or cultural preservation outlets. Uh, many of our students serve internships with the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Um, so work like that is certainly a possibility. Academic work, doing field work out in the world, or even unexpected applications of folklore studies. We've had students go on to become lawyers or earn MBAs, and you don't necessarily think of it instinctively, but an awareness of how viral videos work, of how memes work, of how legends and conspiracies work can be essential to a degree in marketing, to to work in the business world. You know, corporate legends are a major issue when a business suddenly has a rumor circulating about it, and oh my goodness, what do we do? How do we counteract this? All of a sudden, people find themselves needing a folklorist in ways they would not have thought of before. So it turns out to be an unexpectedly applicable area of study. Well, we are at the end of the hour here. Appreciate uh, Linda McNeil, uh, you joining us very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, Tom. I'm always happy to talk folklore with you. Lynn McNeil is Associate Professor of Folklore in the English Department at Utah State University. She's author of the popular textbook Folklore Rules and a co-editor of Slender Man is Coming, Creepypasta and Contemporary Legends on the Internet. Also co-editor of This is the Plate to Utah Food Traditions. And uh, she is co-founder of the USU Digital Folklore Project. And thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah today. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Cash Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering current business information and answering questions about starting and owning a business in Cash Valley. Details at cashchamber.com. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.